JV Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 80 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about exploring value creation in auto insurance with Doug Vromolm from Stable. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that is transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific technologies that we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. All right, everyone. It is, uh, we are recording this the first Friday of March uh, here in Texas. Uh, we're finally, finally getting uh, the first part of spring weather. And it's been kind of unusually cold winter here. Definitely don't want to complain because I know many of you in listener land have much worse uh, winters, uh, a lot of snow, a lot of cold, but it's been kind of unusually cold. Usually it's kind of a seesaw. Uh, here uh, based in San Antonio where I am recording from and uh, it's just been pretty steadily cold gray and miserable most of the winter and so finally the sun's out it's getting a little bit warmer could start putting on the the short sleeves even uh, not quite shorts weather but we're getting there we're getting there so I'm excited to have with us uh, Doug Vromolm from Stable uh, for this week's podcast and Doug where are you joining us from? Uh, in West Hartford Connecticut yeah so it's a little bit colder up here. Yeah, still cold up there. So any signs of spring or still in the middle of uh, winter for you? Uh, so we, we get teased a lot, I feel like, on the Northeast. So we will uh, sure have a, a 60 or 70 degree day coming up here and then blanketed with snow probably for another three to four weeks after that. So we don't get our hopes up. I guess it's smart to do that, but it is kind of a, a tease, right? But it's, it's better to, to know that the, the other shoe is going to uh, drop uh, for sure. So, so before we get started on our interview, don't forget that you can subscribe to the InsureTech Geek podcast by texting geek out to 66866. That's geek out to 66866. Make sure you never miss an episode. So we're going to go back uh, with Doug for Malm from Stable. And uh, Doug, thrilled to have you on the podcast with us uh, this week. And before we jump into uh, Stable and learning all about uh, the company and really kind of exploring value creation in the auto insurance industry, which uh, has been pretty stagnant for decades, I dare say, um, let's talk a little bit about you and your background. So um Looks like you, uh, similar to me, are a Big Ten guy. Um, I see Northwestern, or is that Northwestern College? Is that North? Yeah, it's a little bit different. Still in still in Big Ten country, but not uh, a Big Ten school. Uh, so a small liberal arts school in Northwest Iowa, where I grew up. Uh, so um, it's been my first twenty two years there. Uh, eventually made it out to Chicago, so closer to that Northwestern. Uh, but grew up a Hawkeyes fan, so uh, still still root for them. They're doing all right this year. Uh, Looks like they'll make it to the uh, the, the big tournament. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty pretty exciting times for for that Big Ten team. Anyway, yeah, and you uh, like me were uh, an economics major as well. So uh, let's just talk a little bit about your childhood growing up in uh, Iowa, and what did you think that you would be doing for your career? And I'm going to guess it wasn't in the insurance industry. It wasn't. Uh, so yeah, growing up, I actually wanted to be an astronaut. Um, something I think a lot of kids want to do, but I, I took it to the next level where I uh, convinced my parents to allow me to go to space camp. Um, 
I was very close to convincing them. Uh, I think I was like in fifth grade, fourth grade at the time, uh, into doing pilots lessons and trying to figure out like what that actual roadmap looked like. Uh, unfortunately, like in the in the eighties, uh, when I was trying to do this, uh, my eyes went bad, and so they went really bad. Uh, where I needed like uh, bottle glass type uh, glasses, uh, and so that that wasn't something. Laser surgery really wasn't on the on the market at that point. So that that dream was dashed. Uh, but that. The, I think the science and the technology component of that was something that I just held a lot of interest in. Um, and ultimately, the first part of my career didn't get into that, uh, but it's something that just in the background percolated from like a hobby perspective uh, and and kind of the the regulatory stuff that I did work on earlier in my career kind of like teamed up with more of the science and technology portion of my my hobbies and interests. Um, and that kind of led to, to where I am now. Uh, yeah, so... Um, the econ, the econ stuff, um, you know, I worked in a startup, uh, my first job out of school was, uh, working for, um, uh, a, a small, we, we did a lot of, uh, technology automation for trust departments around the country. So small trust departments in, in, um, you know, towns in Texas, Alabama, Ohio, you know, not, not the top 20 cities in the U S but places where, um, you would deal with a lot of kind of, um, uh, manufacturing type businesses where they would have small pensions or things like that. Um, and these trust departments wanted to automate a lot of the uh, portfolio management that they were doing. Uh, and so we, uh, we had a company where we did both that automation, but then also kind of the, um, the actual financial work behind it. Uh, so, uh, that, that's where I met my first co-founder, uh, Steven Decker. So him and I, I think I was employee number one, he was intern number one, and then became an employee number two. Uh, and him and I built a really good relationship working for about two and a half years uh, at that startup. And fun fact, one of our, one of our current investors, uh, is, is the, the gentleman that started that guy named John Crossan. Uh, so it's kind of nice having that group of people that you've stayed in touch with for that long, uh, to continue to, to evolve relationships and, and kind of work on things together. It's always fun. Yeah. So that's a great, uh, beginning. And I know, um, at one point you decided to go to law school and uh graduated from seton hall university school of law so what prompted the the move to go to law school yeah so that um that was interesting so i, I had a, an opportunity to work uh, for a law firm not as a lawyer so right after working at that startup uh, a friend of mine worked for a, a law firm in dc uh, uh, like a white shoe law firm that got stuck with a uh, an antitrust case uh, so it was visa was our client they were getting sued by the department of justice for antitrust violations uh, and by many other many other uh, companies as well um, and so i was working on a team of like i think there's like 300 attorneys on this case and a lot of these uh, attorneys had no idea about um you know basic economic principles like especially around antitrust and you know they're going deposing people like Kenneth Chenault and, you know, the MX, uh, MX CEO at the time, other people who are like heavily, heavy hitters in finance. And so my, my first job at, at, uh, at this law firm was just to help, uh, attorneys kind of prep for, for these, um, uh, depositions with, with people who understood a lot more about finance than they did. Uh, so kind of consulting for them and working with them. Um, and that was, that was a super interesting case, not working as an attorney, but working, working around those attorneys that kind of led to my interest in, in wanting to get into the law. Um, law school is great. I love law school. Um, you know, the, the theoretical stuff that you work on the practice of law, I found out later on, like I started working for a company called Mercer's, one of the Marshall McLennan companies, um, working on very interesting things. Uh, so more like using some of my technology interests and background, uh, while I was in law school, I kind of like kept, kept up to date on how like code. So I, uh, 
refreshed my skills in Python, kind of taught myself JavaScript, a few other things uh, in downtime during law school. I was continuing to work on some of my own projects, um, but used some of that skill set to help from a data security and intellectual property perspective um, at Mercer um, and uh, dealing within their contract department, working with their outside counsel. So that's kind of how I weaved myself into insurance, had no intent to go work for an insurance company, um, knew nothing about insurance. I think even when I started Stable, you know, had a, had a kind of an understanding of, of insurance, uh, but I've learned so much in the last four years of starting Stable that, that I feel like I'm just now able to hold my own with even one of my co-founders. Um, and now that we bring on real insurance talent, um, like our claims guy, who will talk about a bit, but like these guys still know, you know, thousands times more than I do, um, uh, just given, given my limited exposure to insurance up to that point. Yeah, no, fascinating and, and great transition kind of from, from law school to your role at uh, Mercer, which I know is a, a name that most of our, our listeners are going to be familiar with. Um, so before you went from Mercer to Stable, um, you were also the co-founder of a rideshare fleet, and maybe that was the first time you got exposure to this uh, new concept of using an app to get in the car with strangers and <laughs> there's something that the old man of me said, oh, yeah, you would have never seen. And then, you know, two, three years later became kind of an indispensable uh, service that I used all the time in my travel. So tell us a little bit about that uh, transition and what that was all about. Yeah. And so I, I think within one year of working at Mercer, I kind of realized that I was not cut out to be an attorney. Like it just wasn't enjoyable to me. I love the people I worked with, love working at Mercer and love the whole Marsh family. Um, but the working as a corporate lawyer was not really what I, what I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life. Um, so I started playing around with different ideas, different side projects. Um, and I was probably within the first hundred users of Uber in, in late 2010, uh, early 2011, I think is when, when they came to New York, but it was just black car at that point. Like it wasn't Uber X as, as kind of like it's more ubiquitous now. Um, you know, you would, you would truly order, like you get a huge uh, SUV or suburban um, or, or like a really nice Mercedes or black car. Um, and it was heavily discounted uh, because Uber had, had all this uh, VC money even early on. Um, so as you know, somebody just getting out of school, it's like, oh, this is great. Like I can for 30 bucks, get a really nice car. You take it on dates or you can just pick up friends or whatever it might be. Pick up my parents from the airport, I think once. Um, and so I would talk with these drivers a lot and try to understand or just have conversations around how they were getting their vehicles and understand the licensing process in New York and the insurance process in New York, which is much different than, than a lot of different parts of the country. Um, and, and maybe like uh, it was like 2014, I kind of realized that a lot of the players in the space were, were relatively shady. Think about somebody, like all, all good people, but I think like, you know, getting a, a rental car from somebody in Queens to do rideshare stuff, really have thoughts about what, what type of organization that might be. Um, and thought to myself, like, could I actually produce like a better product for people who need to rent these vehicles and something that's a little bit, a little bit more transparent and can be dealt with digitally? Um, so we built up some very rough uh, product around distribution. So um, a driver could, could print through our platform and they could do all the maintenance requests uh, through the platform. And the whole goal for us, we, we were just lazy, the two of us that started it. We didn't want to have to actually manage the fleet. We just wanted people to pick up the car the first time, then deliver it, you know, until the car like broke down and couldn't be used anymore to the next driver and so on. Um, that worked not as often as we had hoped. Uh, and so we realized that we needed to start thinking about how we were bringing these drivers on. So how do we choose better drivers to make sure they pay on time, they don't abandon the vehicles, and don't get into accidents as well. That was kind of an afterthought, but uh, it's really around like kind of credit management and, and income management. 
Um, and at the time, I think it was in 2015, Uber started making uh, some data available via API so we could um, apply for uh, the use of it. Uh, we kind of put our business case out. We have a small fleet. We're trying to understand these driver profiles and who we should be renting to. Um, and so we started using that just from like a credit modeling perspective to determine who we were going to rent to. Um, and it did have a substantial increase or decrease, I guess, in the number of issues that we had just by doing some of that light credit modeling. Um, so we do things like try to understand, are they earning enough over a certain period of time to actually pay pay this uh, weekly rental? Um, you know, do they have a good community score, a good, good crowd-based um, driver score? Um, and one of the other things we started to realize was there's like a lot of interesting uh, loss control and risk data available as well within there. Uh, and, and what we started to realize was that the fleet that we had built, uh, so I think we got up to like 35 cars at one point, um, and, and the goal was to, we wanted to actually build like a large fleet around it. We had some private equity uh, interest in what we were doing, um, just like how we were able to automate. It's very interesting from an ROI perspective, uh, but a very asset heavy business. So something that's not really venture, a uh, venture interest, but more of like a private equity or hedge fund type interest. Um, but the issue we always came up with was they would look at our, our financials and they're like, you have this static insurance cost that just never changes. doesn't matter how well you're operating, how, like, how, how much risk control you're kind of putting into this. That number just like continues for eternity, uh, good or bad. And we're like, yeah, that, that is a problem. We could see how if we were trying to scale this up, that not, that sh not shrinking uh, is, is going to be a problem from an ROI perspective. So we went to our insurer, um, small insurer in New York. There's there's two, essentially two insurers in New York that do Uber and Lyft in New York City um, and said to them, hey, we're collecting all this data. Um, we have the beginnings of what we think is interesting loss development within our fleet. Uh, is there any way we could work with you to get a better insurance rate? Um, and th they were interested in it. They were open to discussing it, but they just didn't have the capabilities to actually do that to say, hey, we, we'll take this data in, we'll figure out how to underwrite you in a different way, uh, and then do this in an automated way where we can like consistently make this successful for us. Uh, and so with that, that, that kind of started, I think this is like 2017, 2018. Um, and I realized the, the more interesting thing to work on was kind of the insurance problem. So I went and talked to other fleets, talked to a lot of individual drivers. And, and that's when we made the realization that the, the insurance part of this is, is a much more interesting and, and fruitful problem to solve. Um, and it's only going to become more so as different types of mobility get put on. So the hybrid use of vehicles, um, you know, these platforms that are looking to put as many drivers on that they don't they do some background checks on, but maybe not like full background checks. It's not like they're doing trucking or anything like that, where you have drug testing and things um, where you really are, are certain that this is going to be a good driver and, and as least risky as possible. Um, so that, that kind of, uh, that, that fleet allowed us to get to stable. Um, and, and really a lot of some of the technology that we have now is born out of that fleet. Definitely the understanding of the business model was built out of that fleet. Yeah, no, fantastic. Thank you so much for, for sharing that uh, background. Uh, uh, so uh, you eventually leave Mercer, you start stable. Um, what were the markets that you were, um, I guess, originally targeting? And then how has it evolved over the course of time to where we are now in 2022 at a high level? Sure. Yeah. So the first thing I did is I went back to that gentleman I talked about earlier, Stephen Decker, so the guy that I worked with and uh, with that uh, company called Main Street, that that trust automation company. And I said, hey, this is this is what I'm working on. Like this is you know some of the the financial stuff that I put together, and these are the competitors. Really, once he looked at the competitors, he's just like, okay, this is super interesting. There's no automation going on. 
So I think you know the companies that were making waves at the time were like Lemonade, obviously, a few others um, that were talking about kind of like just building a better front end, but automating a lot of the processes. Um, so we looked at them as not necessarily um, roadmaps for us, but just thinking about like the market in general and how we could improve our product or the product that we wanted to offer. Um, so we knew New York very well after a period of time, New York City very well. We had been making a lot of connections within the space amongst fleets and individual drivers. Um, and, and we had built some of our own technology around distribu distribution and handling better handling claims in a better way and then uh, automating a lot of the internal underwriting processes. And, and then the big thing was the data collection for us. We thought that that was very meaningful. And, and it was. So what we did was we went out to reinsurers, and I think we probably talked to 30 different reinsurers, and everybody was interested. Uh, but we got the, the, the feedback almost um, in chorus, uh, unison of chorus was, okay, guys, like there's, there's no insurance person here. It's you and, and Steven, like you seem you know, nice and bright and, and like you could maybe do this, but like you've you have no idea um, about any type of insurance, like PNC insurance. So that's kind of a check mark against you. Um, you want to do this in commercial auto, like livery of, of, of like the really terrible section of commercial auto. Uh, and then you want to do it in, in New York and not even just in New York, in New York City. So like, why are you, why are you setting yourselves up for like the most difficult challenge, like right out, right out of the game? And so we had about two years of those discussions and, and we, we still have like a lot of customers that are interested in using us in New York. And we just, I think at some point we realized we can't get our product live there first. Um, we did, interestingly enough, one of the the company that we were working with uh, as the fleet, um, the small insurer that I talked about, they came back to us and said, hey, why don't we try and work together? You guys can act as a digital broker for us and and start supplying us some of this data. Um, and And then maybe we can work on a product together to improve the market overall. Um, so it was really interesting to us. We did that for about a year. Um, a couple of things outside of um, our launch happened. Uh, so we launched that product with them on February 13th of 2020. Uh, probably the worst time ever to launch a rideshare product, right? With with uh, what what uh, events that ensued afterwards around COVID. Um, and so we got about nine months into that relationship when we realized that that carrier they were they were small enough where they're like we just need to figure out how to survive through covid through the next you know two years or three years or, or god knows how long this is going to last um and and i think the other thing we realized was there was a lot of ambition within the you know the owners of the company that didn't really filter down to the rest of the company and and almost some some people that we would have to deal with on a daily basis saw us more as a threat than like an enabler to them um so we decided to to amicably amicably part ways and try to focus on other parts of the US. And so we went out uh, and spent about six months. We worked with Guy Carpenter for a bit. Uh, so kind of like uh, drummed up some of my old Marsh connections and, and got involved with uh, Guy Carpenter's InsureTech unit. Uh, great folks there that were very helpful uh, in, in getting us in front of reinsurers again. Um, but then just uh, by happenstance, stumbled upon um, a, a woman named Gloria Gantinas, who I think was on your show maybe two or three months ago. Um, and she was working on uh, a company called Pouch at the time, like her own company. Uh, but she was also working on this idea of uh, a true insure tech accelerator. So something where um, not only do we help you with maybe some of the thoughts around, um, you know, sales and marketing and, and raising money like an accelerator would, uh, but we're going to bring 
capacity behind that. We're not going to help you find capacity. We have capacity ready to go through their relationship with uh, ILS Capital Management. And, and so that was really interesting to us. And so we started talking to them this summer um, and, and realized like the, the lack of data that we had on the market wasn't a concern to them. They were really interested in trying to experiment uh, in the space and allow startups the, um, the, the risk capital necessary to get started. Um, so we've built a great relationship with them over the last six months or so, nine, nine months now almost, um, and have focused, uh, we still have a focus on fleets, um, but we've realized that there's also a lot of uh, drivers who are doing upwards of 20 hours um, of rideshare uh, per week. Um, and there's also kind of like ancillary mobility spaces that are very interested and from a risk perspective and from the way we write our insurance contracts are very similar uh, to rideshare. So things like car share, Obviously, delivery uh, is a big one right now, uh, but even like kind of like not not the way you think of delivery of I'm getting DoorDash, I'm getting my my noodles um, delivery like Amazon. Uh, so kind of the trucks you see going around, things like that. Um, so this this concept of on or off platform um, and having kind of a contractor or, or renting out this vehicle for some for some use to, you know, could be somebody today and somebody completely different tomorrow. Um, and so that, that's kind of how we've evolved. And um, from, the, from the insurance perspective, I guess the way we think about it is um, the insurance is key for a lot of these drivers and for a lot of these small fleets. Like it's absolutely needed for them to continue operating in a, in a, a cost-effective manner. Um, but because of the data that we started collecting, whether it's from uh, an Uber platform or Turo platform, there's a lot of other things that we can kind of lay around, a lot of different uh, analytics and, and decision-making tools that, that we have the ability, we have the data, and then uh, kind of the software ability to build for them. So rather than having to pay for something different, a fleet management platform, is that something that we can provide you or give you access to? Uh, so we think about that a lot. Like the, our core product right now is definitely the insurance side, um, but on so using um, individual drivers, uh, um, rideshare drivers, for example, um, we have a driver report that we give them. So it kind of rolls up and consolidates all of their earnings across different platforms that they're working on. Uh, so not a lot of drivers do this, but they should be doing it. You should understand, like, am I, is my time that I'm spending actually worth this, right? Am I only making $10 an hour? Or am I actually making $25 or $30 an hour? So we try to help them understand their top line, then understand some of the expenses that they, we, they input some of the expenses that they have, and then understand if they're just making good use of their time as, as a driver. Um, and, and that's really interesting for them because that's some drivers that do do that. They have to like pick through their driver reports and probably spend two hours on the weekend trying to do that. And that, that just stops a lot of drivers from doing it. So the fact that we can do it in, you know, just by doing an API call to the networks that we're already working with, roll that data out for them. They can spend five minutes on the weekend instead just saying, okay, like, is this something that I should do this, this next week? Um, or did I just make so little money that it's, it's no longer worth me doing this? Yeah, I want to keep going on this idea of kind of that enhanced uh, value creation, Doug, because I find it really fascinating. And I know I've talked to, you know, my share of Uber and Lyft drivers over the years, similar to you, just kind of fascinated about their stories, how they got into it. Um, everyone had a different story. You know, sometimes it was part time. I know one guy in the Arizona area, um, he just said, hey, I live in the Phoenix area, but my office is in uh, Prescott, Arizona. So whenever I'm making the you know hour and a half drive up or hour and a half drive back, I just you know flip it on platform. You know, this guy is kind of his mid 60s. He's doing well financially. I think he had his own um, insurance agency, if I remember correctly. And so it was, yeah, he made a lot of money, but that wasn't even the point for him. The point for him was 
basically have a buddy to ride with, right? Somebody new, right. somebody you who's know, definitely an you know, extroverted type person. And, you know, he always enjoyed the, the conversation. Whereas other people clearly, right, it's it's really their job, kind of a full-time income. They are running a small business, maybe the smallest business that you you can have. Um, so, uh, and, and definitely, you know, they all have strategies, right? Well, I go early in the morning and I do this, or I do the airport runs, or I try to do late at night. And then some people say, well, I don't want to do late at night because then people drunk and they throw up my car right and then i gotta pay extra to clean the car things like that so yeah tell us a little bit more about kind of going beyond just that hey you have to buy insurance you bought us and now hopefully you never have to think about us unless you know the worst happens you file a claim of actually giving them value-added uh you know before that claims experience happens i assume you'll be there if they do have a claim but like what are some of the other things that you can do to show them the value that they have by partnering with stable yeah and it's funny like we i think a lot of this was developed from reading some of the insert stuff like we're on that slack channel uh coverager talks about this all the time i feel like this like lack of touch points with an insurance customer um and i i don't know that we have that solved yet but we think about it almost every day like why would a customer think about us today um, on a day that they're not, you know, hopefully not getting into a claims event? Um, and, you know, maybe once a month, they're actually making a payment to us. Also not something you maybe they put your brand associated with on a consistent basis, right? Not, they know they have to pay it, but is that the only thing that they're doing with us? And so we love this idea of just trying to push additional value through. So we, we talked about the driver report a little bit, just a way to understand, like a very simple tool to understand, you know, are you spending your time correctly? Um, we're working with companies like Marble Pay to figure out ways that we can actually add additional benefits into our platform. So are there things specific to this driver base that they need? Things like, obviously, they're driving many, many more miles than, than a typical auto user would. So their tires are, are needing rotating more often and replacement more often. They're obviously getting oil changes more often. They need to clean their cars more often. Um, so building up kind of like a benefit ecosystem around those types of things where if we can help them under, or if we can help provide uh, discounts to them um, and then provide uh, more users to that, uh, to that uh, vendor, um, you know, are there ways for us to kind of share in those benefits with our, with our users? Um, we think about it from like the risk protection, uh, uh, like advanced risk protection. So like helping, helping you understand like some of the things that we're doing, hopefully stop you from ever being in a claim. Um, but if you are in a claim, hopefully we are able to ascertain like the genesis of that claim much, much quicker. Um, so we're, we're huge advocates of dash cams. And, and I think there's kind of this debate within personal auto, like, do I want a dash cam? Do I want, you know, from a privacy perspective, do I want, um, you know, telematics? Do I want my vehicle tracked, uh, my driving behavior tracked? And there's still that issue with, with rideshare drivers. Uh, but more often than not, they realize like, hey, I'm I'm already being tracked by Uber. Uber's tracking me, Lyft's tracking me. This data is being collected on me. So if I understand that, that Uber and Lyft and whatever platform I'm working with is having some advantage um, by having this data from me, can I can I put my data that I'm creating to work uh, for myself? So. Um, when we think about that, we're like, if you if you're willing to allow us to put a dash cam in your vehicle, uh, we have the the belief that our defense costs are going to be much lower. Even even when we are uh, when our drivers are at fault, uh, it's going to be much easier for us to understand um, whose whose claims re responsibility that is. 
Um, and, and not even that, just by having like, so cloud base is really like our preference for, for uh, dash cams uh, because it allows us to click off, kick off the claim almost immediately. Uh, so a lot of times we can tell if an accident has taken place um, shortly after that accident, send a text message out to the driver and say, hey, like we, we believe you've been in an accident. Here's some steps you should take to make sure everybody's safe, um, you know, contact the police. Uh, make sure you get a police report. Sometimes that doesn't always happen. Get the other driver's insurance information. Um, I would say half the time when we, when we were operating as a digital broker in New York, never had no idea who the insurance was with, right? So we'd have to run like a license plate search and then track that driver down, track that insurance company down. Uh, it would take a long time. So just make sure you've taken like the correct steps as a driver uh, to help us resolve this claim for you much faster. Um, and, and then I think just like the, the positioning where we understand like these drivers need are using this vehicle for income generation. So you kind of you talked about the the gentleman you know that that uh, travels back and forth between his office. That driver obviously when when a claim takes place or when a claim takes place for you or I, we want our car back as soon as possible. Um, but it doesn't kill us if if we don't have it, right? Like I'm I'm still going to be able to pay rent next month if if I don't have my car. Um, whereas these drivers, a lot of them, at least for a period of their life, this is this is a large portion of their income. And so if we don't have a replacement vehicle for them almost immediately, like the, the claim should have, like we should be able to help the car get fixed very quickly or replaced very quickly. Uh, but even then, like sometimes that's outside of our control, like supply chain issues right now. It could be held up for two weeks, like waiting on a part. So do we have a car that you can actually use on Uber and Lyft to help uh, replace that? So it's really just thinking about like, what does this customer need um, and making sure that we've supplied it for them um, versus like, other other policies are great. Like I think you know the the incumbent policies that you can get with the riders, like they're priced well, um, and you know they fit the the um, regulatory needs that you have for the state. Um, but are they? You know, there's still a personal auto policy that they've kind of layered some solutions on top of. Um, our view is like we need to tear this all down and kind of think about what's the first, second, third, fourth thing that this driver needs in the event of an accident, and making sure that we supply those first and then layer the other things on top of that. So Doug, I want to nerd out a little on the insurance side here. And I know um, from my many years at USA, you know, risk segmentation is such a foundational part of insurance. And I talk to organizations all the time about traditional variables such as age, gender, and marital status. Obviously, there's a whole lot more information now that you can get today at your fingertips with uh, telematics and uh, some of the, the data that you're able to collect and go beyond a lot of those traditional rating variables. But obviously determining right um, the appropriate amount of premium to charge based on the the, the risk and uh, this is a you know, I know a lot of the largest insurance companies such as progressive and others talk about billions of pricing cells right that they have a really refined view of risk so can you tell me a little bit about I would imagine you've got kind of some unique challenges yet unique insights as well from the population that you serve at Stable. So how are you approaching this challenge? Yeah. And so, I mean, we do think about risk segmentation. Um, so Multiply's background, uh, uh, Gloria and Steve McKay, the two founders of Multiply, both have um, roots in Progressive. Uh, and then some of the talent that they've brought on to help out also have Progressive roots. So they've like that, that idea of being able to segment, um, like I'll, I'll write a policy for you. You might not like the price, but I'll, I'll write it, right? Um, we, we think about that. And we, we definitely want to uh, we apply both a carrot and stick approach. So using the dash cam thing as a video, like that's a huge segment for us. Like 
if you are self-selecting into a dash cam, like you, you are going to get a very good rate from us. Um, if you're not, we'll still write a policy for you, but you, maybe you want to go somewhere else because you could get a better price elsewhere. Um, so we think about it from like a driver uh, behavior perspective, but it, even then, and and like actually, Gloria and I would probably have slight disagreement on this. Like the 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 benefit of underwriting via behavior, I think, is still somewhat uh, to be proven out. Um, you know, we've seen some companies try to do that, and either they're doing it incorrectly, or or it takes more time to develop than maybe was initially thought, um, or we're just looking at the wrong things. Um, my view is like every city and area of the country is a little bit different. So um, an example would be if I'm if I'm doing kind of like a blanket uh, behavioral based underwriting on let's say harsh braking, um, and all I do is drive on the BQE uh, this this freeway between kind of Brooklyn and Queens, I'm it's going to look like I'm an awful driver because I am hitting the brakes every like three seconds and I'm probably hitting them very hard because of the bumper to bumper traffic. So there's a lot of considerations I think that go into play whether or not like that type of uh, behavior-based data makes sense um, and then where it would make sense. Uh, so there's just a lot of work that's needed on that. Not, not that it can't be done, but at the end of the day, I kind of think, is that as valuable from an underwriting perspective versus just the fact that I have dash cam footage from you getting into an accident? I, in my, I'd pick the dash cam footage over like the ability to, to have a telematic solution. Um, and then there's things like experience, like definitely like actuaries aren't going to disappear, right? There's still generalizations that need to be made. And those are, those are like, we have amazing actuaries that have a ton of experience working in the shared economy and auto in general. Um, and so their, their jobs are pretty secure for a very long time. Um, but we do think about it from a, um, how long have I been driving, but also what type of work am I doing? Am I doing, um, ride share? Am I doing delivery or am I doing, um, uh, like, car share, am I just dropping this off and I actually have no risk because somebody else is actually taking this vehicle from me. Um, and then even from like a ride share perspective, like, am I driving mostly in the city? Am I driving mostly in, um, on the freeway? Like am I going back and forth to the airport a lot? So I, I would put a heavier emphasis on the type of activity that's being done from a segmentation perspective, uh, but then also like where that activity is being done, uh, more than even like saying, Hey, like, do I have one year experience as a driver? Or do I have five years experience as a driver? Like at some point, those kind of melt all together in our view. And we really are more concerned about, do you have the proper safety equipment in your vehicle, such as a dash cam? What type of activities are you conducting in? Like you've a passenger in the vehicle, so you're driving a little bit safer, or do you have some noodles in the vehicle that are hot and you want to make sure they get to somebody within five minutes as you're driving like a madman because there's nobody to judge you at that point. So those are, in our view, like the type of activity being done and knowing that that activity could switch back and forth. Like that same driver that was just driving like a madman could then switch onto Uber and say, hey, I'm, I'm gonna, like, I want to keep my five-star ratings. I'm going to drive like perfectly for this person. Um, so those are like really interesting problems that we think about. Definitely don't have them solved yet, but we'd love seeing that data come in to see like, hey, is that is that same driver like an idiot today? And then like tomorrow when they're doing rideshare, like the the perfect, like if you just looked at that one day, they look like a perfect driver. Uh, yeah, so the segmenta segmentation stuff is very interesting. I love the background we've gotten from the Multiply team to be able to allow for that and, and hopefully write any policy that somebody would actually buy from us. Yeah, so I have not... Uh ever driven for rideshare service or, or done any deliveries, but I can tell you I'm, I'm, you know, fairly responsible driver. I haven't been to an accident in, in many years, but the last two days, my daughter was very much in danger of uh, getting a tardy at school. So um, I might've had some creative 
uh, driving that involved, you know, cutting through gas stations the last couple of days. So yeah, that driving like a madman versus kind of the standard, I can definitely, definitely relate to that. There's one other, like another interesting thing to think about here is, especially like with age and experience, like I, I lived in New York. I like, I just forgot to renew my license. And for a while I didn't have a driver's license. I had to sit and do the test again, do the course. Um, so I, you know, I'm 42, uh, you have decent credit, like established from like a underwriting perspective, like progressive gives me a very, very good rate. Um, but somebody who's like 21, 22 has been doing rideshare for a year, like terrible credit, um, you know, not married, no education, like from an actuarial, pure actuarial perspective, that person's probably going to have double the premium that I have. Um, but like they've been driving, you know, maybe 50, 60,000 miles over the last year on rideshare. Like if you are, if me or that person shows up with, uh, to pick you up from a rideshare person or rideshare perspective, take that other ride. Don't, don't ride with me because you're more likely to get into an accident with me. Yeah, no, that's a, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point, right? It's just a, the purpose, like you said, you know, the, your familiarity, it, it just um, uh, changes a lot of the assumptions that I think we've traditionally had, right, in either personal or, or commercial auto. Uh, so, you know, as you know, insurance is a very conservative industry historically. And, um, you know, you've talked a little bit about some of your experiences and partnerships, but I'm just wondering, you know, there's these groups that we kind of call gatekeepers, whether they be you know, agents of brokers, carriers, reinsurers, regulators. Um, so, so what's your experience with those folks uh, in our segment and how have you been able to get buy-in? Yeah. So obviously it is very conservative, very, uh, very risk averse, um, which makes sense for, for what's going on. Um, I think we just ended up getting lucky. We, we had like a six month clock left where we said, Hey, if we can't find this partner, we're probably just going to figure out what else we should do. Like, can we sell off some of this technology? Um, you know, can we, can we roll ourselves into another company? Can we go back to the, the company that we were a digital broker for? Should we work on something completely different? Um, and it, it's really kind of pure luck, I think, in finding that, that partner that's willing to, to take that chance with you, especially when you have no data, right? So if you're truly trying to do something from a cold start perspective versus I think like others that have been successful in our space and, and great competitors in our space, they had a broker before. So they kind of had you know, a number of policies that they had control over and they could kind of tell, um, you know, uh, what these losses look like over a longer period of time, what their go-to-market strategy would be. Um, and then they had a little bit more respect, I think, amongst the, uh, the insurance community. And, and everybody's always been nice to us. It's not like somebody you know, kicked us out of their office or anything like that, but they it, it just never fell under their mandate or we couldn't get them comfortable with, with what we were doing. Um, so I think it's definitely like you need to find that partner that you can sell into and say, hey, like, you're buying into us being the expert in this and that we have this idea and we don't really have enough data to show you whether this is true or not. It's a hypothesis, right? We're, we want to test this hypothesis. We can't do it without the insurance products. Are you willing to help us write that insurance product? And I think with multiplying ILS, we found that. And I think other uh, insure techs, obviously a, a number of them are getting started and can continue to be started. So it's really just finding that insurance partner that kind of believes in what you're trying to do, um, that aligns on the vision. Uh, is willing to help you execute on that. Um, yeah, that, that's. I, I hate to say that it somewhat comes down to luck, but it, maybe it's just like going out and talking to enough people and finding that, and then realizing if it is like really, really far out, 
the timing not, might not be right. You might have to put it on the shelf for a while or, or figure out another way to get to get uh, moving forward. Yeah, you mean you mentioned Gloria and, and Multiply, right? And as we talked with her on an earlier podcast episode, I think that was the entire vision is to support um, startups such as Stable that maybe you know out of the box or a little bit different proposition or isn't just a you know the same as usual but just with a small twist right and i think of companies like lemonade as as being um, much more akin to that traditional insurance and they may be executing automation better or giving you know marketing better digital interfaces better etc so not saying that they don't have value but um it's a little bit more um just a, a variant on a theme rather than you know you're really kind of building something that's more radically outside the um, traditional insurance uh, uh, ecosystem and and for good reason, right? Because risks are, are ever evolving and ever changing. And clearly this has been uh, just a mushrooming segment that, that needs appropriate insurance solutions. And so you've been there for that. So as we wrap up, Doug, I'm just kind of curious. So what is next on the, the roadmap for Stable? What do you have on your radar? Yeah, so we um, we were very lucky with Multiply to, to they, I, I mentioned, you know, they, they offer a lot of insurance support, but they're also... Uh, they consider themselves like a mini VC, so they they led our, our most recent round with uh, with one of our pre-seed uh, investors, Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. Um, so we kind of have the ability now to kind of get live in four states, uh, and so we'll be doing that, executing throughout the year, um, uh, launching in Illinois uh, first uh, later this spring. So very excited to kind of get that product out uh, into the market. Uh, it looks like it's going to be a joint, um, or We'll have the joint capability of, of selling both ride share and car share um, as it stands right now. So excited to get out in that space. The car share stuff is also very, very interesting uh, to us. Um, this concept, uh, and I didn't come up with this term, somebody else in the in the, in the space did that we've gotten to know uh, of distributed fleets, right? I'm a, uh, kind of what I was doing with, with the ride share side, but for car share. So I have 10 vehicles and I'm just trying to like create a passive income stream or maybe replace my job with that. Um, it's also interesting, like a rideshare driver who has like a very uh, a lot of control over their schedule can start to do those types of things. We think about creating our own customers in that space as well. Um, so yeah, uh, going live in four states this year, um, and then trying to pick out kind of what makes sense for us in 2023. Um, the we we talked to drivers, uh, John, our, our third co-founder, John Salvucci, who is the actual insurance guy. And I didn't bring him up yet, but he like gives us. Uh, the credentialed insurance that we need. He's a, a former IA, um, and so uh, loves talking to the uh, the customer. But he worked as an underwriter for a while in AI, at AIG. Um, he's out talking to customers every day about specifically what they need and making sure that kind of the features that we're building uh, are, are what is going to get them excited. It's fun to watch those videos because you like see people's eyes light up when we talk about some of the higher end features of what we're trying to do that just aren't being offered right now. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're just excited to get that product out, um, you know, start to see how people actually interact and react to it, uh, how the community overall interacts and reacts to it. Um, and then not that we're looking for claims, but I know our clients, we have a, a, this, a gentleman named Dylan Brand who came over from James River. Uh, so James River did a ton of Uber work right through, I think, 2018. Um, he's seen the good and the bad of, of Rideshare um, and has handled uh, claims there for a long time. Uh, really excited to have him on board uh, and some of the stuff he's building around the claims process, like how that interacts, because it's not always our claim. Sometimes it's Uber or Lyft's claim. So how do we how do we help that customer through that journey? Um, we very much believe that we're going to win or lose customers on the claim side of things. Um, and so we're excited just to see if we're actually doing that right, if we're actually providing uh, the value that we think we need to provide uh, to customers. And, and like that's as far as the insurance product is concerned. 
the most important point uh, you know, of that journey for them. Uh, it's not going to happen to everybody, thank God, but um, those that it does, we want to make sure that we're, we're doing uh, right by them. Yeah, fantastic, Doug. So uh, for folks that want to learn more about uh, where to find you or learn more about Stable, where would you point them to? Yeah, you can check out our website, Stable INS, short for insurance. Um, so just the initials INS. Um, we're on uh, LinkedIn. We have a company page on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm on, link, on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, our company's on Twitter. Um, you'll see, uh, uh, yeah, I think we interact every once in a while on Twitter. Uh, it's a very interesting insurance community right on Twitter. Uh, that, that's fun to kind of like josh around with. So um, yeah, you'll, you'll see us on there, but uh, check out our company page on LinkedIn, uh, just stable insurance, same with Twitter. Follow us uh, if you want to learn more. Always feel free to reach out. Um, I'm just Douglas at stableins.com. So if you want to talk about anything, I love talking. Uh, future of insurance, uh, future of regulated, regulated risks, regulated sectors. Uh, so happy to have a conversation at any point. Yeah. Fantastic, Doug. Well, it's been a, a thrill to have you on um, and, and wish you the best of luck. Um, I'm going to p- pivot now uh, as we wrap up the episode to a few news items for the week. Um, the first one comes uh, from uh, Digital Insurance, and uh, this is caught, a headline that caught my eye. It says, Insurers Published for Intervention in Digital Claims. This is based on um, research uh, feedback from J.D. Power. And they talk about uh, the number of companies that have come out, of course, with digital claims offerings, maybe in the auto insurance space, right? You you file a claim on an app, you take photos of the claim, you kind of submit it, and you're looking for a resolution. And uh, what they found is that about a third of these claims are still requiring uh, some type of physical inspection as a follow-up. Uh, the, that uh, percentage has actually not decreased over the past year as more and more companies have uh, become, uh, you know, embraced digital workflows and, and, and consumers have embraced using those digital workflows. And so it's causing a lot of frustration from customers, you know, when they are able to submit their claim online and uh, submit photos, they're looking for uh, not necessarily an instant resolution, but a very quick resolution. And in, in many cases, it's taking a, a week or more for uh, claims adjusters to follow up. And then if there are some uh, kind of, you know, a manual need to have somebody physically take a look at the damage or things like that, that is uh, causing a lot of frustration uh, for customers. So, you know, what what are uh, certainly possibilities that a lot of folks have been talking about um, can actually be negative customer experiences if not done right. And so uh, I found that one to be a, a really interesting study. Uh, the second news items, uh, Travelers uh, has acquired the tech assets of the InsurTech Trove uh, for personal insurance for an undisclosed amount. This is from the Insurance Journal. And uh, Trove is one of those companies that when they started, uh, I really was you know, excited uh, for them, excited about their technology. And they've been through kind of an interesting journey. They actually started as more of an on-demand insurance product. Uh, the one that resonated with me is you think about uh, maybe your expensive camera and ensuring that only for the two weeks that you're on vacation uh, rather than on some type of personal article floater policy um, for an entire year. And I know it's actually something uh, that I had taken a look at uh, at a traditional insurance firm to try to emulate you know, what they were doing. And we kind of realized that we probably have to charge 80 to 90% of the premium for those two weeks that we were for the whole year, because that's obviously when the assets are more at risk. They later pivot on to um, 
working with Waymo, the automated uh, driving uh, company about uh, offering some of their insurance, as well as pivoting towards uh, an embedded insurance platform that uh, people could use their technology via APIs. And so that's what Travelers is acquiring here. So it's it's a fascinating study trove, I think, of just some of the evolutions that insure techs go through, uh, the twists and turns of the, the journey, and uh, an interesting move for obviously a large company, Travelers. Uh, they talk in the article about their acquisition of a company called Simply Business that was based in the UK that is selling small commercial business online as well. So some interesting uh, acquisitions from uh, travelers. And then finally, uh, a fundraising announcement uh, from Coverager on a recent guest that we had, uh, Raheem from Plum Life. So they've raised their seed round of $5.3 million. And as we've talked previously on the podcast, there's a lot of insurtech and innovation going on in the property and casualty space and, and less so uh, in the life insurance side. And we've talked to some of those uh, folks um, uh, such as Ladder Life and, and others, but uh, Plum is one that you know we were kind of excited to see what they've been doing and uh, just happy to see that they've uh, had a successful uh, seed raise. So anything in those news items of the week, uh, catch, your, catch your eye, Doug, or you think is, uh, is intriguing? Yeah, I need to I need to pass on the claims article to Dylan. Uh, get his thoughts on that. But I that it's I don't know if it's great that that's happening. I'm curious how much of that is supply chain issue, not supply chain, but just like lack of uh, workers, right? I think a lot of companies are having problems finding people to go out and carry tasks. Um, so hopefully that's somewhat short lived uh, and and gets solved uh, out a bit. Um, it's interesting with uh, with Trove, right? When I in 2018, when we were starting Stable, you know, saw them as a as a competitor and kind of had them on our competitive uh, list. Um, really smart people. Uh, you know, Scott's a great guy. Um, Travelers is out of anybody out of any incumbent right now. I think is doing some really interesting things on uh, acquiring assets and kind of rebranding. Um, and and I assume there's going to be a you know, Trove powered, uh, Travelers branded, uh, or, or they'll come up with a new brand name. I, I can't remember what they all are, but I've seen several new Travelers branded items, right? Digital items uh, come out. So it's great to see that that found a landing place. Um, you know, we were talking about like doing variations on a theme and Trove never did that, right? They, they were really early, 2013, I think, when they started, 2012, um, and doing something, you know, somewhat completely different that ultimately maybe didn't work out, but the willingness to take that risk and actually try and create new products within the insurance space. Um, obviously that's something that we, we are trying to do. So I, I love seeing that, um, even if it's not ultimately maybe the outcome that they wanted, um, it's great to see that that will live on, um, you know, in, in another form. Um, agree with you on the, on the plum life stuff that the, the life stuff, I don't know a lot about, but it's also, uh, very interesting. We, we were interviewing somebody from Bestow actually uh, and learned way more from him than, than he did from us, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, so just super cool stuff going on on the on the, on the the non-PNC side of, of uh, InsurTech. Fantastic. Well, Doug, it's been a great conversation. I want to thank you for uh, being on the InsurTech Geek podcast with us this week. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, for all of you in listener land, this has been the InsurTech Geek Podcast powered by JB Knowledge, uh, who is all about technology that is transforming and disrupting the insurance world. Uh, I am your co-pilot this week, flying solo, Rob Galbraith. You can find me at endofinsurance.com. And of course, you can find my uh, co-host most weeks uh, and the master of ceremonies, James Benham at jamesbenham.com. Uh, thank you to Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, Kara Dalton-Aro, who's our creative producer, 
producer. And thank you in listener land for joining us today. We look forward to talking with you soon. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next week.